Next, this month's special series focus on geriatric medicine and aging. ReachMD talks to experts about new thinking and innovations in the treatment of conditions of the aging body and mind. Studying our aging population may be a new opportunity to improve health care for all of us. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. William Hall. Dr. Hall is the fine professor of medicine, the director of the Center for Healthy Aging, both at the University of Rochester School of Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure and a privilege to be part of the show. Dr. Hall, to begin with, we have over 55,000 centenarians, and 85-year-olds are the most rapidly growing cohort in our entire population. Is it time that we begin to look at them as a possible source of improving health care for all of us? Well, I think that the centenarians are usually defined as people who live to be at least 100 years are kind of a metaphor for one of the really big challenges, not only for the medical profession, but for society in general, is that over the next 50 years, there will never have been so many older people as a percentage or proportion of the population. So what we learn from centenarians, hopefully, will allow us to modify our entire medical approach to the aging process. So they are very, very important to us. What should we look at? I mean, in the past, many research projects have excluded the elderly. What can we learn if we begin to include them or actually even study them as a, shall we say, unique part of our population? Well, you know, for many years, by law, the NIH excluded people over age 70 from clinical trials. So the huge body of information we have about uh, caring for adults is really based on a population that, by and large, isn't really suffering the advanced stages of chronic disease. Fortunately, that's changed. So what we can learn by including these individuals in research is a great deal about the pathogenesis and the natural history and response to therapy of chronic disease, which is really what medical care increasingly is all about. Can a person with a chronic disease actually live to be 100? Well, you know, they can. And the interesting thing, there's been some recent literature on this, that it is possible to start to kind of disentangle the role of disability and morbidity associated with disease to survival in old age. And while some of this has to do with probably genetic factors and good luck, increasingly it looks like the kind of medical care we receive is very, very important. I used to think in my practice that if you gave a patient a chronic non-fatal disease, he might have better health because of it. Are we seeing that actually? Surely, one could cynically argue that the more times you see your physician, the more chance there is for error to occur if, as you get older because of the very thin margin between effective therapeutic and adverse reactions, particularly to pharmaceuticals. I think that the increase in life expectancy and particularly the increase in functional life expectancy has a great deal to do with really solid, good medical care. Do you think that some of these people who reach this age may actually even have some type of functional reserve that we can't measure? I used to have patients, two people would fracture their hip on the same day. I knew which one would recover more rapidly based on their personality or some factor that I couldn't actually quantitate, but I knew existed. 
Sure. Well, that's kind of the holy grail. Undiscovered functional capacity is as good a way to say it as there is. For example, there's been some interesting studies among close communities of people, particularly Roman Catholic nuns, who have been followed from the time they're out of eighth grade until they die, and some of them are centenarians. And it's been just fascinating what's been discovered there, that the correlation between functionality, let's say brain function, and one of our benchmarks, pathology of the brain, that the correlation is not very good. And that some of these women who died with the plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's, in point of fact, had exceptional function, while others who didn't have those kinds of pathological changes seem to become demented and lose a lot of their functional capabilities. So there is some element there, as yet undefined biologically and clinically, that makes a difference. And your hunch, I think, is right on target in terms of that you can oftentimes pick out these people. What interests most of us is not so much the years that we live, but the quality that we we live. Can you look at these people, 85 and above, and measure the amount of disability they have? And is there some way that you can avoid being disabled despite living to an advanced age? The answer is yes and no. I mean, clearly, it would be Pollyannish to say that we can all escape the deterioration associated with aging. On the other hand, there seems to be so many examples of people who, in some cases, by lifestyle choices, have really learned to cope with chronic illness and also to maintain functionality, both physical function and mental function. And my hope is that as we understand these factors more thoroughly, that this will become part and parcel of primary care and that physicians will actually be financially compensated for paying attention to these sorts of things as opposed to only being paid for procedures and for specific therapies. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. William Hall. Dr. Hall is the fine professor of medicine and also the director of the Center for Healthy Aging at the University of Rochester School of Medicine. And we're discussing today the possibility of looking at people who have reached 85 and above as a source of knowledge to help all of us live a healthier life. You bring up a very interesting point, and that's looking at certain aspects of our older population in a way that isn't often given much credence, especially by Medicare or any kind of compensation systems. And I'm really talking about ACOV, which is the acute care of the vulnerable elderly. Could you tell us a little bit about this? Well, ACOV is one of the least well-discovered jewels of medical research right now. These studies come out of the RAND Corporation have been asking a simple yet very profound question that says, if you ask a group of medical experts what is reasonable care for people who are on the verge of frailty, say adults over age 75 living in the community? How good is their care, particularly in terms of issues that are very important to older people, such as the proper care of diabetes, congestive heart failure, and all of the things that we could name? But they also threw in, how are we looking at the so-called geriatric syndromes, beginning of cognitive disorders, urinary incontinence, fear of falling, these kinds of things? And what they find very briefly is that it's about 50-50, as most of these studies have when they look at medical practices. About 50% of the time, physicians score very well on addressing the pressing issues of chronic illness, ACE inhibitors, for example, the treatment of congestive heart failure and adequate control of diabetes measured by glycosylate hemoglobin. But when we look at things that seem to be more associated with functionality in older people, 
physical strength, stability so that they don't fall, urinary incontinence, dementia, depression, the completion rate falls down to about 30%. So what the ACO study is trying to show is, can we do these assessments in an office practice in a way that isn't so totally unrealistic that no one's ever going to do them? And the answer is, it seems to be yes, we can do better. I've uh, often felt that falling changed the life of my patients much more than a myocardial infarction. The quality of their life deteriorated after a fall much more than, say, a major heart attack. They were able to return to a pretty normal lifestyle, often after a heart attack, but not a fall. And so little time is given in an office practice to how to keep people involved in their neuromuscular function. And also that probably goes along with incontinence and depression, as you've mentioned. Is there any work really being done in studying the genomes of the elderly and their children? Well, you know, the cardinal rule of living a long life is to pick your parents carefully. Uh, And most of us haven't quite had that choice. So there has been a lot of work done. I'm thinking particularly of the studies such as the centenarian study that comes out of Boston University where they, in fact, have now used the modern tools of genomic analysis to sort of say, what can we pick out of these various changes in gene expression that might give us some clues? And while there does seem to be a very good correlation with, let's say, early dementia, there is much, unfortunately, somewhat disappointing evidence to date on the impact of genes on functionality. In all probability, we just haven't been smart enough yet. So that looking at genes, for instance, that might promote muscular regeneration or healthy blood vessels, it's probably only a matter of time until we understand it. Now, the better thing, of course, as you imply, is let's study the children of those individuals and then get some idea of when, if there is genetic upregulation or downregulation, when does it occur and what can we do to promote the right sort of fit between genes and a long life. It's going to be very important, but probably we're going to learn as much from the children than we are from the centenarian parents. I've read someplace that uh, by the year 2050, we'll have over 800,000 centenarians in our country. And all I can think about is our president writing letters the way he does now, supposedly from the White House to everybody who reaches 100. If he's really going to do that and get writers cramped from all of that, shouldn't the rest of the community benefit from this cohort that is going to be so valuable for us to look at? Well, probably someone should be writing a letter to the children of these centenarians and urge them to take a certain amount of self-responsibility to show how they can build on this sort of genetic lottery that they seem to have won and preserve their function by lifestyle choices such as exercise, exercising the mind as well as the body, maintaining adequate body weight, and other things that we know are highly predictive of a long life. So, yes, I think that the writer's cramp will be there, but more importantly, let's look at those children. So much is said about preventive health now. It appears that the leadership in the medical community as well as Congress is beginning to look at preventive health as a way to save money by keeping people healthier. And I think this group of people seem to have less operations, less hospitalizations, and be on less drugs. But what are we supposed to do in screening this particular group of population? Is there too much or too little that we should be doing? You know, in general, the rule is from a population standpoint that no preventive measure we take will likely alter very much in terms of disease prevalence or cost of disease unless there's at least a five-year life expectancy. The interesting thing is is that people in their 80s in reasonably good health already have a life expectancy of five to eight, maybe 10 years. So that first of all, the argument is, is it worthwhile 
urging prevention on people that old? And the answer is, in a qualified way, it really is very useful. And when we figure out the math on this, whether it saves money or not, everything you said about reduced need for particularly invasive medical procedures is true. The other thing that probably has to be factored in, though, is that this older population has great value to society in terms of their wisdom and things that they can do, often to an advanced age, such as community volunteerism, so that there is a payback that's out there. It isn't just people with their feet up and sitting in an armchair. It's really allowing people to be at sort of the peak of their wisdom, much more involved in their communities. I remember people coming into my office who had reached 85, a man in particular who said, you know, you've been badgering me about my lipids and my weight. Uh, I'm 85 today, and I want you to know I'm going to have a hot fudge sundae every day for the rest of my life. And all I could look at him and say is, you know, I love ice cream, and you've picked the right doctor, and God bless you. But the other part of that is, that comes to mind, is PSAs and lipid profiles. How do you respond to a certain population which is still very anxious and wants everything done? How do you deal with a PSA of somebody who's 85 and in your heart you know doing it may do them more harm than good? Well, hopefully this is a continuing and absolutely vital role for primary care physicians, uh, somewhat of a vanishing breed in the United States. You have to have a, a patient's and family's trust before you can have these kinds of conversation and be able to explain with credibility that following up on an elevated PSA at age 85 is, in, in my estimation, cruel and unusual punishment. But and yet it's not something that can be done casually or with a letter. It does require uh, the old-fashioned patient-physician communication and, and trust. As far as lipids are concerned, particularly screening and then therapy, as you know, it's a moving target. Uh, just today, for example, with the American Heart Association, there seems to be evidence in a somewhat younger population that even giving people with uh, normal lipid values uh, a statin may or may not be highly beneficial in reducing the morbidity of, of heart disease. So I think we just have to keep an open mind. But I, I, the one thing about geriatrics is uh, if you've seen one patient, you've seen one patient. It becomes very difficult to generalize. But generally, if you apply common sense and good medical care, uh, you'll accomplish an enormous amount with this population. My phone will be ringing off the hook. Everyone will want to see CRP because of the Juniper study that you just you know referred to. <laughs> right. I, I just dread going back to the office. Uh-huh. Well, I've been around long enough to see those studies come, come and go. Stay, but sometimes right. go right. right. Estrogens were good for postmenopausal women too at one time. What we're talking about today is something that's here to stay. Our older population. There's going to be more and more of them, and they want the best in medical care. And I think looking at this age group will give us a lot of information about preventive care. I want to thank Dr. Hall, who's been our guest today, and we've been discussing a very important issue. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Geriatric Medicine and Aging. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, visit us at ReachMD.com. And download ReachMD's iPhone app medical radio to listen to the same live stream of medical news and information that you enjoy plus cme and thousands of searchable podcasts download the medical radio app today